0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Unlocking the Benefits of CAR-T Therapy in Hematologic Malignancies, Latest Evidence and Practical Considerations for Delivering State-of-The-Art Care, featuring Drs. Karen Jacobson from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Caitlin Costello, University of California, San Diego, Moore's Cancer Center in La Jolla, Shannon Maud the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania, and Allison Siegel from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center in Pittsburgh. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XZA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: I'm Karen Jacobson. I'm from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and I'm really excited to be here with a panel of all women uh, to talk about CAR T cell therapy uh, with you today. So this, pan- this panel is unlocking the benefits of CAR T cell therapy and hematologic malignancies. Um, again, I'm Karen Jacobson. I'm here with Caitlin Costello, Shannon Maud, and Allison Siegel. So I'm just going to set the stage and uh, just introduce CAR T cell therapy in general, and then we'll hear from all of our panelists um, about their specific diseases. So just to get everyone on the same uh, playing field, uh, what is CAR T cell therapy and how are they made? So a CAR is a chimeric antigen receptor. It's a chimera because the antibody molecule, uh, or because the molecule um, or the receptor is actually part antibody molecule and lower left-hand picture that the blue portion of the molecule is the extracellular portion. That's the antibody portion of the molecule that has tumor specificity. And the intracellular portions, which are shown in green and red, um, are the T-cell activating molecules. And the CARs we're going to talk about today fall into the second generation CAR category, which have a CD3-zeta domain as a T-cell activating molecule, as well as a co-stimulatory domain. And for the CARs we're going to talk about today, it will either be CD20 or 41 bb And then in terms of how CAR T-cells are actually made, most of the CARs we're going to talk about today come from the patient themselves, so the patient undergoes leukapheresis to collect their T-cells. These T-cells are then sent to a laboratory where they are activated and then transfected so that the gene that encodes the chimeric antigen receptor is uh, integrated into the nucleus and then expressed on the surface of the cell. These cells are then expanded and then sent back to the treating center where the patient receives the CAR t cells after a brief course of lymphodepleting chemotherapy. Again, that chemotherapy is not meant to treat the underlying cancer, but is meant to make the patient a better host for T-cell expansion and activation upon reinfusion. Um, And then, of course, we'll go through how we monitor patients for response and toxicity. There are a number of FDA-approved CAR T-cell therapies that are available that we'll talk about today. There are three uh, that are approved for patients with relapse and refractory large B-cell lymphoma in the third line and beyond. That's AxiCell, brexacell and uh, Lysacel. Um, uh, uh, sorry, AxiCell, cell and, and TissaCell. Um, AxiCell is also FDA-approved for follicular lymphoma in the third line and beyond, and TissaCell is also FDA-approved for patients with pediatric and young adult BALL. Um, we have a fourth uh, CD19-directed CAR that's approved for B-cell malignancies, uh, Brexacell. It's approved for patients with relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma, as well as adults with uh, BALL. And then finally, we have a BCMA-targeted CAR for multiple myeloma, that's Idacell. And that's for patients with relapse and refractory multiple myeloma after four or more prior lines of therapy. And with that introduction, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Maude, who's going to talk about uh, CAR T-cell therapy for ALL.
2: Thank you so much, Karen. Um, I'm Shannon Maude from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and University of Pennsylvania. So I'm going to start off by talking about CAR T-cell therapy for ALL. Um, We'll start off the focus in pediatric ALL, and um, I think it's fitting that we start with this because the first um, CAR T-cell approval was actually in pediatric ALL, um, which was something that was very exciting for, for us as pediatricians, as it's not the typical course. Um, so we'll spend some time talking about sort of the, the stage that that fell into um, and then talk about some of the newer data um, for adult ALL as well. So pediatric ALL has been really a success story for um, combination chemotherapy over the years with um, patients with newly diagnosed ALL in recent years um, achieving a very high chance of long-term remission approaching 90% in some patients. But unfortunately, for patients who relapse and particularly for patients that relapse more than once, this um, curve is, is almost the inverse um, where survival is very poor and over the years really the improvements have come in reducing the risk of initial relapse and there haven't been many advances. Um, in outcomes for patients who had relapsed, especially more than once. And so this was an area that was in urgent need of new therapies and and that's where CAR T-cell therapy um, came into that picture. So I'll start off with a case um, that really has been a typical um, story for patients that have been treated with CAR T-cell therapy. So this was a young man, um, 21 at the time of uh, referral, but initially diagnosed with BALL at 8 years of age and had what we would call standard risk ALL that in this day and age we'd expect a 90-plus um, chance of long-term uh, survival without relapse. So, he uh, received standard therapy um, and then had a late isolated testicular relapse four years from diagnosis and off of therapy for about uh, 10 months. Um, This is typically considered a low-risk relapse, and he was treated with testicular irradiation and chemotherapy alone. We wouldn't usually use bone marrow transplant in this setting because it's low-risk. Um, he achieved a second remission, but then unfortunately had a second relapse, which was an isolated bone marrow relapse, four years off therapy. And now this relapse was incredibly refractory. Um, he received standard cytotoxic reinduction chemotherapy with refractory disease um, and then received. Uh, Blenitumumab, which was investigational at the time, received the CD22 antibody moxitumumab, which was investigational um, at the time and was refractory to both of those agents, um, and then came uh, to our center for CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy. So what is the landscape of CAR T-cell therapy now in in this day and age? Um, So, as um, Dr. Jacobson mentioned, Tisacel was um, approved in pediatric and young adult ALL in August of 2017, and so for the past number of years, that really has been the only option in ALL and unfortunately has only been an option for children and young adults. more recently uh cell was just approved in october of this year for relapse refractory ball in adult patients there are um, a number of other uh, clinical trials that are ongoing as well so um, there's a, a product out of the fred hutch um, you know, similar to Lysacel um, that is undergoing phase one and two clinical trials and is in a multicenter um, clinical trial right now. And then there are phase one trials of universal um, CAR-19 products. Um, but at the time that this patient was treated, there was um, uh, really just clinical trials available. Um, and. He received um, the product that ended up being approved as Tissacel. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the the data that went into um, that approval. So the ELIANA trial was an international multicenter phase two trials of CTL-019, now known as TSSL, in pediatric and young adult patients with relapse refractory BALL. So these were patients in second or greater relapse, relapse after transplant, or who had chemorefractory disease. Um, After enrollment, they could receive bridging chemotherapy while their cells were being manufactured, and then they received lymphodepleting chemotherapy of fludarabine and cyclophosphamide, followed by a single dose of uh, CTL-019, which was weight-based for patients under 50 kilograms and a flat dose for those over that. The median time from enrollment to infusion was 45 days. Um, on this trial and what we were really looking for was the overall response rate of CR or CRI um, at three months. And so the data, um, the initial data reported on that trial um, that was evaluated for uh, registration was that an overall response rate, and then what I'm showing here is the duration of remission and event free and overall survival. So for the primary outcome of uh, CRCRI, 81% of patients um, achieved a CRCRI that was maintained at two months after treatment. And the relapse free survival at 12 months um, after this therapy was 59%, with only eight of the uh, 75 patients going on to a consolidative uh, stem cell transplant. This is longer term follow up data from that study that was reported at an ASH um, a couple years ago. Um, it, showing a little bit longer term um, median follow-up. And what we saw in this data was that um, the duration of remission was really holding up and that the majority of relapses on this trial um, were really within the first 12 months of treatment um, and there appeared to be a plateau. We're certainly looking at um, longer term data to see if that holds up. But what this suggested was that for um, a fraction of patients, um, this could potentially be a durable therapy as a single therapy even without um, consolidative transplant. Um, the overall survival was also very encouraging. We saw that um, patients um, who relapsed were able to uh, be salvaged in, in many cases, and so um, the overall survival out to 24 months was 66 percent on this trial with slightly longer follow-up. So how did this hold up when this was then FDA-approved and um moved into the real world. Um, As we know many times, those patients can be much sicker than patients who are eligible for the trial. And so I think it was really important to be able to study whether um, these outcomes would hold up in the real world setting so there has been an analysis done by um, CIBMTR as well as there are several um, consortium that have looked at real world data of pediatric patients and young adults up to the age of uh, 25 treated with his in the real world and um, what was seen on this CIBMTR analysis was that the CR rate was about 86%. Um, This is in almost 250 patients. Um, So this really did hold up with what was seen on the trial. And in addition, the 12-month duration of remission at 61% was very similar to what was seen on the trial. There was a slightly higher proportion of patients who went on to a consolidative transplant um, in remission 16% in this analysis compared to about 11% um, on the trial. So I wanted to call your attention to um, a presentation um, here at ASH on Sunday on uh, updated data um, from the real-world setting, um, which looked at also the breakdown in patients less than 18 years and over 18 years, showed some differences in baseline characteristics with the um, older patients having received more therapies. Um, as you might expect, there are often patients who have relapsed multiple times and having a higher disease burden, um, but still achieving um, very good outcomes and similar outcomes to the younger age group. So I'd encourage you to go um, see that. So, um, as I mentioned, more recently, another um, CAR T-cell therapy has been approved for ALL. And this is in adult patients where over 25 years of age, that really was lacking for um, a number of years. So we'll talk about um, the Zuma-3 trial um, that led to that approval of uh, cell. So this trial um, in the phase one setting as shown here was done as a dose finding study and then moved on to um, a phase two portion. Um, Patients also received fludarabine and cyclophosphamide in a slightly different schedule um, than what I showed you before, and then a flat dose of um, modified CAR T cells and were followed for response um, after that. So the initial outcomes on this trial You can see here um, out of uh, an N of 55, the overall CR or CRI rate was um, 71%. um, And the breakdown with um, most patients being in CR, but a a fraction of patients um, having CR with incomplete hematologic recovery. And they also looked at um, patients who had an aplastic marrow, which has been seen with CAR T cells um, as well. So this trial led to um, FDA approval in October of uh, this year for adult patients. And I wanted to show you um, longer term um, outcomes and the duration of remission for these patients as well as overall survival, which is broken down here by patients who had CR or CRI um, with the top um, blue line being um, CR And um, just uh, uh, under that, the combination of both of that, and then in green, those with CRI. Um, And what's shown in um, this graph to the left are um, when patients are, not censored, uh, excuse me, censored for transplant, um, at the time point of transplant, and in this graph, not censored um, for transplant. Um, So there's a little bit of a difference with median duration of remission not being reached um, when patients are not censored uh, for transplant. This is overall survival. looking at patients who achieved remission, and then um, those patients who did not achieve remission, as you um, might expect, had a much poorer um, overall survival. Um, but a, a few patients um, did appear to be salvaged and, and um, were able to survive for quite some time after this therapy. So um, that trial is um, that product. Excuse me, is being studied in a pediatric trial as well. This is the Zuma Four trial of uh, KTX19, um, showing the phase one results. It's currently being studied in a phase two study. Um, and seeing similar um, response rates with 78% of patients achieving CR or CRI, with a majority of those, 16 out of 18, um, MRD negative. The majority of these patients um, did go on to transplant after this. Um, What this um, graph is really breaking down is a couple of different uh, doses that were studied on this trial, as well as formulations of the product, Um, and they found that there were some differences in um, safety with the different formulations. Um, so ended up taking the, um, the the lower volume formulation into the phase two portion. Um, that phase two is currently ongoing, and an NHL cohort has been added to that as well. So um, what we have all seen in, in the um, administration of these products is that Um, While there are really incredible responses, um, different than what we have seen with standard chemotherapy, the toxicities are also very different, Um, and we can see some significant toxicities um, in the first 30 days of uh, treatment after um, infusion of, of these cells. CRS and neurotoxicity or ICANS are really the main toxicities that have been seen and so we want to spend some time just sort of talking about what the approach has been to that and how it's evolved um, over the years with our experience with this so in the early days of these trials um, I can tell you I remember sort of waiting to the last possible minute to try to intervene um, because we really um, wanted to preserve the function of the T cells. And so um, in the initial phase one trials, we often waited until patients had significant hypotension on more than one vasopressor or on high-dose vasopressors, significant respiratory symptoms, um, either intubated or leading to that, um, or really rapid progression and worsening of symptoms before we intervene. Um, and as we, um, you know, have all discovered over the years with these trials, intervention with cytokine blockade with um can be very effective um, in reversing these symptoms or mitigating um, the worsening. And what has been found is that it does not appear to have an impact on response. Um, or expansion of the T cells. And so we've now moved to intervening earlier to um, try to make these therapies more safe and um, less morbid for patients. But I will say that this practice is often quite different depending on the disease and also on um, the the patient that you're treating um, and their comorbidities, their age. So in the pediatric setting, we often still wait uh, longer than I would say um, most of my colleagues here probably do um, in adult patients. Um, But in a patient who has significant comorbidities or an older patient where a persistent high fever um, can be significant in and of itself, um, many people do intervene with um, tocilizumab um, for fever alone, even without other significant symptoms. Um, And there have been some studies looking at that in high disease burden patients as well. Um, In pediatrics, often we're willing to tolerate a bit more, um, but in a very high risk patient um, may intervene for that high persistent fever. I think what has been seen is that we're all a bit quicker to um, intervene as the patient is worsening. So if a patient is going on oxygen or starting to escalate to needing CPAP or looking like they're going to need that, um, we're often intervening with tocilisumab there. um, We're just at the start of hypotension, um, even potentially before they're going on vasopressors or if they're on just a, a low dose of vasopressors. Um, The practice is still to use um, tocilizumab first and to try to avoid um, too much fluid uh, because of the capillary leak that's seen, and then to go to steroids if not improving um, and additional cytokine blockade after that, um, and still to try to wean steroids quickly. ICAN's um, management has evolved too. Although I will say there's still a lot we need to learn about the pathophysiology of this and what agents might improve it. Um, but in the past, um, we really didn't know that there were any therapies um, that were help that would help. Um, and tosilizumab um, was not found to help, and there was some concern that it may worsen symptoms due to. Um, an increase of IL-6 after blockade of the receptor. Now I think a lot more people are are going to steroids um, with signs of uh, severe neurotoxicity and sometimes even in the early stages, and this is often dependent on the product used in the toxicity profile that's seen as well. So back to our um, patient. So this patient was um, referred for CAR T-cell therapy and received um, what is now TISA on um, a phase one clinical trial. He had high disease burden, a packed bone marrow and peripheral blast going into infusion and developed grade four CRS, received um and did improve, although did have um, significant CRS entered an MRD-negative remission and remained in remission for two and a half years, and then unfortunately suffered a CD19-negative relapse, um, which some studies have shown is higher risk in patients um, who have received prior blenitumumab, particularly if they've been refractory. He was able to um, re-enter remission and undergo stem cell transplant um, and remains in remission. So how do we monitor for um, the potential for relapse and decide what to do with our patients um, after this therapy? One way that um, we and uh, in the field have been monitoring for that is to look at how long the T cells persist and to use B cell aplasia as normal B cells are cleared by CD19 CAR T cells as a marker of persistence. And this is very helpful in being able to um, predict CD19 positive relapse as early loss of CAR T cells, particularly within the first six months of infusion, is much higher risk. But unfortunately, this does not predict CD19 negative relapse, um, and those relapses are quite common and about evenly distributed now, um, and we don't have a method currently to predict that. Um, So in in addressing um, poor persistence, um, I will just quickly um, draw your attention to a presentation that will be given at ASH um, by a member of our group, Regina Myers, um, on Sunday. Um, looking at reinfusion of CAR T cells for poor persistence and showing um, some effect of that. So um, in the last uh, bit of time, I just want to talk about how we approach relapse and how we think about it. Um, It's obviously dependent on what the type of relapse is, whether it's CD19 positive or negative. Um, As you may be able to consider other CD19 CAR T cell um, therapies, even reinfusion or humanized products um, with a CD19 positive relapse um, versus CD19 negative, you will be um, thinking about potentially other immunotherapies um, if the patient has not responded to chemotherapy. And I think in many cases, particularly if the patient hasn't had a transplant, we're we're thinking about that um, in the relapse setting as well. Um, In the interest of time, I will uh, just sort of gloss over this, um, but this is some data out of a humanized um, CART-19 phase one trial we conducted at our institution in patients who were receiving in the retreatment setting and CAR naive setting, um, showing uh, high remission rates and, and patients being able to stay in remission after this therapy. So in summary, we're seeing high remission rates in relapsed refractory BALL, but I think the major problem is that um, there are still Uh, high rates of relapse that we would of course like to overcome but up to 50% of patients may have durable remission um, with a persistent CAR. So I think where we're going with the critical needs are how can we improve persistence um, through various mechanisms, reduce antigen escape, and identify patients at high risk for relapse so that we could potentially prevent that. Great, thank you so. Oops, sorry, thank you so much,
1: Shannon. We did have a number of questions come in from the audience about CRS and ICANS and management, and I think I'm just going to table those until Allison speaks because she's going to talk about that again. But one of the questions that came up um, regarding your case, or a couple of questions that came up regarding your case, were um, could this patient have gotten brexaciclib and, and uh, or tisiclib, and how would you choose at this point given that he falls in the adult and young adult category? And then, what is the role for consolidative uh, allotransplant transplant for these patients? Now, I think Shannon can probably talk for a whole hour on um, those, but we'll try to keep it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's an excellent question. And I think that they're, they're linked to each other as well. I think um, that um, decision on which product uh, to give and whether to go to transplant are, are both linked questions and very challenging um, decisions to make. Um, you know, up until very recently, there was only um, one therapy that was available uh, was available to Cicel. Um, now, at this time, this patient would have fell into the indication for both products. And so I think what would go into my decision on which to use is... Um, whether the the patient will go on to an allogeneic transplant or not, um, the majority of the data with brexucel in in pediatric patients um, has seen patients go on to transplants. In the adult population, it's more variable, and there are some patients who are able to achieve long term remission even without transplant. But in the pediatric setting, most of these patients um, have gone on to transplant, and those who have not. Um, have had a much higher risk of relapse. And that is likely related to how long the CAR T-cells persist. So with brexacel containing a CD28 domain, um, generally what's been seen is that the persistence is quite short, usually um, two two months at most. Um, With tisacel, a large fraction of patients can potentially have long-term persistence of CAR T-cells. Um, And so most of those patients have not gone on to transplant. And so I think thinking about the comorbidities, what the patient preference is, um, factors into which product and also whether you're considering transplant post. Great. Thank you so much. And then the only
1: other question that came in about the case was whether you had to consider uh, only pediatric options because the patient had a diagnosis of pediatric ALL initially, or do you consider the age of the patient when they're relapsing? And I I think that it seems we consider the age of the patient when they're relapsing. Okay, great. great. All right. Um, so uh, so I'm going to talk now about uh, CAR T cell therapies in both diffuse large B cell lymphoma as well as mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, So obviously, um, there are uh, a a lot of sort of practical implications about CAR T-cell therapy. You've heard today, we've already introduced sort of how complicated this therapy is involving phoresis and shipment to a laboratory for manufacturing, and then obviously the the monitoring for acute toxicities in the first weeks after CAR T-cell infusion. So these have implications in terms of figuring out who's eligible for CAR T-cell therapy? So of course, when we're talking about eligibility, we're looking at the FDA label. So for large cell lymphoma, that's patients relapsing after two or more lines of prior therapy. Um, And uh, there are some obvious uh, comorbidities that would maybe make patients uh, sort of less fit for consideration of CAR T-cell therapy, and those will differ from CAR T-cell treatment center to treatment center. Um, But right now, CAR T-cells are given in a specialized center that are... um, you know, trained and accredited uh, to deliver these therapies. Um, At that center, the patients would obviously undergo their leukophoresis. uh, And then when the cells come back, they undergo lymphodepletion, as I had mentioned previously. And then we monitor those patients closely in the first couple of weeks after CAR T-cell therapy for both CRS as well as neurologic toxicity. Um, And then the longer term follow-up is often shared between the CAR T-cell treatment center as well as um, uh, the local oncologists in, in, in in sort of the long-term follow-up, we're really monitoring for some of these uh, prolonged cytopenias that we see in about a quarter of patients, uh, B cell aplasia, and then uh, um, risk of infection, and of course, risk of relapse, and how to manage those relapses when they occur. Um, so I had already uh, introduced the three FDA-approved products for large cell lymphoma. It's AxiCell, Tisicel, and lysacell based on these three pivotal phase two clinical trials, the Zuma-1 study, the Juliet study, and the Transcend study. Um, so these were all given to really essentially chemotherapy refractory patients with large cell lymphoma. We know these patients generally have about, you know, response rates of about 20 to 30 percent with available therapies, CR rates under 10 percent, and the median overall survival for this patient pre-CAR T-cell therapy was about six months. Here you can see um, the patients that were treated um, on these studies uh, and and how highly refractory they were um, and that they were all FDA approved based on these studies. We'll go through the actual data and how it compares to some of those historical controls I just mentioned in the next several slides. Um, so first we'll look at Zuma-1 for AxiCell, um, and here you can see the the response rate was 83%, the CR rate was 58%, um, and the uh, median duration response was 11.1 months, um, with uh, about 40% of patients maintaining their response past 6 to 12 months. Um, uh, here are some of those uh, curves now looking at progression-free survival in all patients, uh, sorry, in, in patients by their response. And so you can see that patients who achieve a complete response or a partial response, which are the top two curves, um, have, you know, have excellent long-term progression-free survival and that most of the relapses are occurring, you know, really within the first six months, but if you maintain your response past six months, uh, it does pretend for good survival as well as relapse-free survival. Um, We've seen very long-term follow-up for for this study. Um, So last year at ASH, we saw the four-year data. This year, we'll see the five-year data, which continues to show that about 40% of patients are are alive, uh, you know this far out you know, f- you, know, f- you know four plus years out from their car T cell infusion, um, and uh, this obviously looks significantly better than the median overall survival of six months with available prior therapies before car T cell therapy. Um, So that we see similar results with the Juliet study. We can see that based on response, we see patients who achieve a complete response have excellent progression-free survival, as well as overall survival. Um, And that long-term follow-up has really demonstrated that patients who respond have sustained clinically meaningful improvements in their quality of life. Um, And here we see um, some updated results with longer follow-up now at 24 and 36 months where we see about 30% of patients are alive and without disease relapse at that time point. Um, It's a significantly higher proportion of patients who are alive and without disease relapse who achieved a complete response. And again, those like sort of hallmarks of being in response at three months and at six months really does predict for long-term remission. We are gonna see at ASH this year um, some real-world data looking at uh, Tisicel in the the real world. Um, And the responses look similar in terms of efficacy and actually more favorable in terms of some of the toxicities that were introduced by Shannon. Um, for the, the Transcend NHL-001 study of lysocell in patients with large cell lymphoma, again, this shows similarly very positive results. Uh, response rates of about over, over 70%, CR rates over 50%, and you can see here, again, for, patient, for all patients, uh, the uh, probability of continued response is quite high. For patients who achieve a, a complete response, it's, it's quite good. Um, and then when we look again at longer follow-up, the, we're, not seeing a, we're seeing that plateau, which is very reassuring um, with similar um, long-term remissions. Now we're seeing two-year duration of response and PFS on this study of about uh, 50 and 40% respectively. So one major question that's been asked is if they work so well in the third line and beyond, what about if we move these up a line of therapy um, and should, uh, could these actually replace auto-transplant, salvage chemotherapy and autotransplant in primary refractory and early relapsing large cell lymphoma in the second line of therapy? And there are several phase three trials that, are, um, that have tested this. Um, we uh, These are the Belinda study for um, TisaCell, the Zuma7 study for AxiCell, and the Transform study for Lysocell. These are all randomized studies. These are high-risk relapsing patients with large cell lymphoma, either primary refractory to upfront chemoimmunotherapy or relapsing within the first 12 months. They're randomized in a one-to-one fashion to either go directly to CAR T-cell therapy versus undergo salvage chemotherapy, and if they respond favorably, having an autologous stem cell transplant. Um, so these studies are um, going to be presented at this meeting. Uh, so the Phase three Belinda study of TisiCell um, versus Standard of Care um, uh, did not meet its primary endpoint of an improvement in uh, event-free survival. Um, it was similar uh, in both arms, um, whereas the, the Zuma 7 study as well as uh, the TRANSFORM study did meet their primary endpoint of a superior event-free survival in the experimental arm with CAR T-cell therapy versus auto um, autologous stem cell transplant. Um, So you can see uh, the 24-month event-free survival for for the OxyCell arm was 41%, sort of very similar to what we see on the Zuma-1 study, whereas the 24-month event-free survival for the standard of care arm was 16% on the Zuma-7 study. Um, And then I think one other important uh, Endpoint for these studies was that they also looked at quality of life for patients in, b- enrolled in both arms. and You can see uh, this will be uh, presented again at, ASH, um, at this ASH meeting, but you can see that patients who received axicell had a significantly improved quality of life during the time of, uh, of actual treatment during that acute toxicity window compared to patients undergoing salvage chemotherapy and an auto transplant. Um, and then again, as I mentioned before, the TRANSFORM study for lysocil was also uh, positive in terms of an event-free survival benefit for Lysacil of uh, 10 point, a median 10.1 months versus 2.3 months. Um, and again, this will be presented on Saturday at this meeting. And similarly, they looked at quality of life endpoints um, and were able to show that quality of life was either improved or maintained uh, after Lysocell compared with uh, standard of care. Um, and one of the questions we did get was, how do, how do patients fare after CAR T-cell therapy compared to an autologous stem cell transplant. I think what you're seeing from some of these quality of life um, assessments is that the sort of acute period of, of therapy is actually more favorable for CAR T cell therapy. It's a, it's a much shorter period, um, and uh, the you know how patients actually experience those side effects is, is uh, a little bit less significant than some of the side effects we see in, in the first three to four weeks after autologous stem cell transplant. I think when patients have good outcomes, uh, eventually they end up being lymphoma patients in remission and we're seeing those quality of life uh, scores actually start to merge So there are a number of different ways uh, that are ongoing to try to optimize CAR T-cell therapy for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So of course, as uh, Shannon had already mentioned, uh, we need to improve CAR T-cell persistence, uh, deepen these response rates, and and improve durability of response. And so there are a number of different uh, ways to modify these CAR T-cells or modified lymphodepletion to to try to do this or combine CAR T-cells with other immunomodulatory drugs. Uh, There are approaches now to try to get these CAR T-cells available to patients more quickly But not only to get them available to patients more quickly, but actually to um, uh, infuse sort of fitter, um, more active T-cells back to the patient and using various changes to the manufacturing techniques. Uh, We're looking at allogeneic off-the-shelf products. Uh, We'll see some abstracts uh, for those uh, at this ASH meeting as well, which would be available off the shelf. And these are T-cells that are derived from healthy donors. And then to uh, sort of combat the concept of antigen escape, we're looking at dual target Targeted um, and a dual antigen targeting cars targeting more than one tumor antigen to decrease the selective pressure for immune escape. So I want to just end with a case in terms of uh, for diffuse large B cell lymphoma. So I have a 68 year old patient that I treated with a triple hit large cell lymphoma. He had had three cycles of R E P O C and had clinical and radiographic progression midway through. So he was primary refractory to his. Upfront chemoimmunotherapy. He then went on to receive one cycle of RDHAP with disease progression. Um, he was bridged to CAR T cell therapy with polituzumab in the setting. Um, this is what his PET scan looked like going into CAR T cell therapy, and then on the, sorry, on the uh, left and then on the right you can see what it looked like one month after car T cell therapy um, and this is probably the largest disease burden that I have ever seen uh, successfully be treated with car T cell therapy this was actually a partial response at one month um, but he's followed locally and his his response actually continued to deepen over time and he's now 12 months out from car T cell therapy in an ongoing remission and we do see that with partial responses about 30 to 40 percent of partial responses uh, to car CAR T cell therapy with large cell lymphoma will deepen over time. And I think people are now trying to understand what are the sort of qualities of those PET responses that might predict for patients whose response is bound to uh, deepen as opposed to those who are bound to progress. Um, So, as we mentioned before, Brexacel, which is the product that Shannon talked about in adult BALL, has also been approved for relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma. And Brexacel actually looks a lot like AxiCell, except that there's an extra step in manufacturing where uh, the T-cell phoresis product is actually purged of any circulating CD19 positive cells, so that you aren't uh, including circulating lymphoma or leukemia cells uh, in the transfection process. Um, So Again, you want to think about who's eligible for for these uh, CAR T cells for mantle cell lymphoma, and so right now it's actually very, very broad. It's any patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, although as we go through the clinical trial, you'll see that all these patients were required to have seen a BTK inhibitor on the pivotal clinical trials. Uh, Again, there will be specific sort of patient uh, comorbidities that each site will consider differently in terms of whether they are contraindications for CAR T cell therapy or not. Uh, Patients are treated exactly the same as they were for diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Cells are collected, and then the patient comes back and receives lymphodepletion. They're watched for acute toxicities, um, and then then they go into longer-term follow-up. So this is the, the Zuma-2 clinical trial that led to the FDA approval of Brexacel and relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Um, so uh, patients uh, were allowed to have um, one to five prior lines of therapy, but that therapy had to have included a CD20 monoclonal antibody, an alkylating agent, and a BTK inhibitor. Patients were bridged um, with either steroids or abrutinib or acalabrutinib at the investigators' discretion discretion. Um, They then received fludarabine and cyclophosphamide at the same doses uh, that were uh, done for AxiCell and uh, a weight-based CAR T-cell dose. Um, And then their first tumor assessment was on day 28, and the primary endpoint for this study was objective response rate. And so here you can see uh, 67% of patients res- uh, achieved a complete response uh, uh, following a single infusion of Rexacel for these highly refractory mantle cell lymphoma patients. And at a median follow-up of about 18 months, um, about 50% of patients remain an ongoing response. And if a patient actually achieved a complete response, that, actually, that number was actually 70%. Um, uh, so this is you know, significantly improved over standard of care therapies for patients after BTK failure in mantle cell lymphoma. And here are just the duration of response, progression-free survival, and overall, overall survival curves for this population, which show a nice plateau. I think everybody is waiting to see, in a disease that doesn't really have a curative therapy outside of allogeneic stem cell transplant, whether this is really natural history-changing and transformative. Um, how long do we have to follow these patients to, to say that maybe, maybe there are a proportion of patients that could be cured with CAR T-cell therapy? And at this ASH meeting, we'll see some data now looking at the real-world data of Brexacel in patients with relapse and refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, we've seen a little bit of data from the Transcend NHL-001 study of Lysocell for mantle cell lymphoma. So this was the pivotal study that led to large uh, approval of Lysocell and large B-cell lymphoma. Um, but it also had a, a, co- a cohort of patients with relapsed and refractory mantle cell lymphoma who had to have seen the same prior therapies uh, as patients did on the Zuma-2 study. Um, you know, the, the trial design is actually quite similar um, to what we saw on Zuma-2. Um, and... Uh, These are some of the early responses. So similarly, we're seeing an excellent uh, CR rate of 66% for patients treated on this study, and the follow-up on the study is shorter um, and the number of patients are smaller, Um, but we are seeing several ongoing responses now, almost approaching two years. So again, I will end my discussion with a case. Um, so this was a 55-year-old man that uh, presented with uh, TP53 mutated blastoid mantle cell lymphoma with a key 67 of 80%. So every high-risk feature, and this is not a made-up case, this is a, a real patient. Um, so he was initially diagnosed uh, in 2007, at the end of 2017, um, he was uh, he had actually been treated with uh, three cycles of bendamucine rituxin, and had stable disease, then had three cycles of uh, rituxin and citerabine, again, with stable disease, and then was put on acalabrutinib, um, and within three months had had progressive disease. So he was actually treated on the Zuma-2 clinical trial in November of 2018. Um, he actually had a very uncomplicated course, um, despite his uh, disease, uh, with only grade one CRS and no ICANS. Um, he was not treated with either tocilizumab or dexamethasone. Actually, was able to go home on day eight after the mandatory observation period. Um, so this was his PET scan going into CAR T cell therapy, and these are his PET scans in the subsequent years following. So he's remained in a deep CR. Someone who didn't respond to any prior therapies had a deep CR that's been ongoing for several years. Um, so I will just go to a couple of questions that came up, um, and so one question that I'm going to actually just ask my. Uh, colleagues um so now seeing some of the results of the randomized clinical trials in lymphoma actually i'm going to point it to allison who's also a lymphoma doctor um what do you think do you think this is going to be practice changing in terms of and standard in terms of what the new standard of care is for uh relapsing large cell lymphoma for in first relapse in first relapse yes, yes.
3: <laughs> i do i do i think that you know as we introduce that idea um we'll see perhaps a gradual shift in in practice patterns, but for high-risk um, first relapse patients, I think that the data is convincing and um, it, it will change Yeah, practice.
1: Um, I agree. I absolutely agree. And I think the question is going to be, once we look at the data this at this meeting and it gets published in a peer-reviewed publication, is how big is the improvement and, and will this actually be practice changing for all relapsing patients or just for those high-risk patients? I think that's really going to be dependent on sort of the magnitude of the benefit of CAR in this setting, which we'll have to scrutinize with a close eye um another question was similar to one that uh went to Shannon but was uh do we recommend allo transplant after brexacel for mantle cell lymphoma um uh and so as you can see from our, well, our case was presented on a clinical tr- trial so uh we you know consolidating with an allo transplant would have meant taking the patient off the clinical trial but i don't know what you do allison but in my practice i don't consolidate with an allo transplant in that setting. Um, I think right now we're seeing very stable uh, ongoing responses in about 50% of patients, uh, very long term. And I think the risks of an allo transplant sort of uh, outweigh uh,
3: potential benefits given those numbers. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think a lot of uh, these mymantocell cell patients are older with maybe medical, multiple comorbidities. And given that impressive plateau in the curve, it feels not, yeah, not worth the risk. Um, and then finally, as uh, Dr. Uh, Shannon mentioned, uh,
1: on the, on the um, Ileana study, the, the manufacturing time was 45, or, or sort of the, t- the vein-to-vein time was about 45 days for Tisacel for those pediatric uh, patients getting Tisacel on the um, Ileana study the question was is that is that true on some of these other studies and also, i think it's also a question of is that true in the real world right now so i didn't talk about the turnaround time um, uh, for these trials in large cell lymphoma but what i um, what i can say is the turnaround time has improved greatly now that we have these therapies available in the real world so for axi cell the turnaround time is about uh, 16 to 17 days that was true on the clinical trials and it's true now this it's the same turnaround time for brexacell and that uh, what we're seeing, at least in lymphoma for TSSL, is a turnaround time of about 22 days. Um, and for Lysocell, which was more recently FDA approved, we're, we're, we're told that the turnaround time is going to be 24 days, but um, we're still gathering that data.
2: Is that what you're seeing in, for right. ALL? Yes, we are seeing that um, in ALL as well, that in the real world setting, the turnaround time is, is much shorter and it's about 22 days.
1: And so these are products that we can actually get to, uh, you know, get to patients in a reasonable amount of time now, which actually means that we can actually treat many more patients than than we previously could. Um, And so it really does behoove everybody to refer their patients who meet these criteria to a CAR T-cell treatment center because we're increasingly being able to treat more and more patients uh, without restrictions. So it's now my pleasure to turn uh, the um, presentation over to Dr. Siegel, who's going
3: to talk about CAR for Follicular Lymphoma as well as CLL. Hi, I'm, I'm Allison Segel. It's very nice to meet you. I'm, uh, I practice in Pittsburgh at uh, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center. Um, and I have the pleasure to talk to you today about uh, CAR T-cell use in indolent lymphomas uh, with a specific focus on uh, follicular lymphoma, for which we now have an FDA-approved CAR T-cell product, as well as some emerging data in CLL. So uh, let's, let's start off with a case of um, a woman with uh, relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma who has received, um, prior to CAR T-cell therapy, a remarkable amount of, of therapy, which I, I do think we see this um, sometimes, although this is a bit of a dramatic, um, and true case. So this lady was diagnosed in um, 2011 after presenting with asymptomatic lymphadenopathy. She was, of course, followed until um, for three years uh, without any treatment until in uh, 2014 she required therapy due to the development of a perineoplastic rash. Um, she received bendamustine rituximab for six cycles and achieved a complete remission that lasted for about five years, then uh, relapsed again with recurrence of that perineoplastic and uh, she had a subsequent scan that showed some recurrent disease that was biopsy confirmed. She received rituximab, but unfortunately did did not respond and and actually had progressive disease. Um, She then uh, received um, obinutuzumab and CBP, but again had progressive disease. The disease was still um, follicular lymphoma. Um, She was CD20 negative at this time, however. She went on a clinical trial uh, with combination immunotherapy that unfortunately she did not respond to. She then received lenalidomide um, with a partial response, but relatively quick progression. Um, She was then placed on a PI3 kinase inhibitor, uh, copanliceb, and had a mixed response, but ultimately progressed both in her marrow and with um, enlargement of her spleen. A bone marrow biopsy was done that was consistent with follicular lymphoma. Uh, She then received more aggressive chemotherapy with ice uh, combination regimen and progressed. Um, She then received uh, such a long, a long case um, of of such a refractory patient, but um, received more therapies, um, polituzumab followed by venetoclax um, with some clinical response, but um, but progression. So finally, she was um, treated just this April with uh, CD19 CAR T cells. Um, you could see her scan, her PET scan prior to therapy and then um, after receiving treatment, um, she, which she tolerated relatively well, she had grade one, two CRS with fever and some mild transaminitis requiring tocilizumab but um, was able to be discharged home by day 10 and then you could see her follow-up scan which shows a really nice um, remission after, after failing so many um, other agents. So here is the um, uh, sort of line of events that we see for someone with follicular lymphoma that is eligible for CAR T-cell therapy. So we would um, expect to be seeing patients that have had two or more lines of therapy that might be eligible for CAR T-cell treatment. They should not have active infections or inflammatory disorders, and then sort of the the next few steps are very similar as to what we've, we've done in large cell lymphoma. So the Zuma-5 data we'll focus on now, this is the trial that led to the approval of CAR T-cell therapy XSL for follicular lymphoma. So this was a phase two study. Um, the planned enrollment was 160 with um, a focus on follicular lymphoma of 125 people. Um, the eligibility included relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, specifically those that had two or more prior lines of therapy that had to include a CD20 monoclonal antibody and an alkylating agent. The conditioning regimen was that which, which we give in large cell lymphoma, fludarabine, and cyclophosphamide, and then a weight-based um, axis cell dose. The endpoint was overall response rate, but then some secondary endpoints, um, including uh, toxicity, duration of response, um, were also studied. So here is the response slide, and um, I could draw your attention to the middle bar graph that um, focuses in on follicular lymphoma. So analysis was done when there were 84 patients, and you can see that the um, overall response rate was very high at 94%, and most of those patients were um, complete responses. The responses that that were seen were largely durable, particularly those that were that were complete remissions. Um, So this was presented at ASH uh, by uh, Karen last year, and it is going to be updated this year as well uh, by Dr. Nilapu if you would like to to see this, but um, last year we saw a median follow-up of 17.5 months, and at that time the median duration of response was not reached. Um, and 64 percent of the patients with follicular lymphoma had an ongoing response. Um, you can see in these graphs here, specifically the second one, if you look at the follicular lymphoma curves, particularly this dark blue line here, those are uh, patients with follicular lymphoma that were in, that achieved a complete remission, and those were um, our very durable responses. Um, the, here is the, uh, the second curve are those that only achieved a partial response, and we see, um, you know, a notable difference. Um, visually there. So at ASH this year, again, we'll see this updated with a much longer uh, follow-up. It now is median of about 30 months, and we see an estimated um, median duration of response now um, having been reached at 36 point or 38.6 months. And as of data cut off the people um, with follicular lymphoma, 57 percent of those were in an ongoing response. Here is the um, uh, progression-free survival and overall survival, which, again, these graphs were from um, Karen's presentation at ASH last year, and we see excellent uh, progression-free survival and overall survival. These curves are separated by, um, by those in f- with follicular lymphoma and those with mantle cell lymphoma, which had a shorter follow-up, um, but even for all patients, you see that the progression-free survival hadn't been met, and certainly the overall survival um, was not met, uh, the median wasn't met. Um, the 12 month progression free survival, to give you a, um, a better understanding, was 73% for all patients. Overall survival excellent at 92%. So now, again, we have this updated at ASH this year with a median follow up of 30.9 months, and we see that the estimated progression free survival is now met at 39.6 months. Um, interestingly, uh, we We do see some separation in duration of response based on one pre-specified risk group, and that's patients with follicular lymphoma who have had progression of disease after their first chemoimmunotherapy within two years. That's a well-established prognostic uh, variable. And this bar graph here was from uh, ASCO of this year. And the response rate between these two groups, the first ones being the um, the group that did have progression dis- of disease within 24 months of their first chemoimmunotherapy, um, and comparing that to patients without progression of disease within 24 months, we can see their overall response rate and CR rate were similarly excellent. And then. Um, However, we see um, at ASH this year, and this was um, a little seen as well um, at ASCO last year, um, that the median progression-free survival is, is, has separated out a bit. And in patients with follicular lymphoma that had progression of disease within 24 months, the median progression-free survival was 39.6 months, whereas it, whereas it was, is not reached in those without progression of disease within 24 months. Although I would say that both um, both of these, uh, the dur- durability of response in both of these groups is quite good. Here is the safety data um, for follicular lymphoma treated with Axisol, and I would um, note that, that the toxicity is, is comparable and perhaps a little, little less toxic in patients with follicular lymphoma. So about 78% of patients had CRS. Mostly that was fever with some hypotension. Only 6% of people had grade three uh, CRS. So that would be requiring um, vasopressors. And then we see 56% of people with uh, ICANS or any, actually in this any neurologic event, um, 56%. And then the grade three is 15%. Most of that is tremor or um, a confused state. So this is um, the data from the ALARA study studying uh, tisicel in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. Um, We will see this data uh, updated at ASH this year as well. So in this study, there was uh, similarly um, high-risk relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma patients that were refractory to two lines of therapy or or had uh, relapsed after an auto transplant. So they were uh, treated um, similarly to axicel, you know, collected. Although their their product was frozen and rolled, they could receive bridging uh, therapy during the T cell manufacturing. Received restaging lymphodepletion, which similarly uh, to other products, it's uh, fludarabine and cyclophosphamide, or in this case, bendamustine, could be given. Um, and then the T cell product was infused and they were assessed at three months, as well as followed for long-term safety. Their, over, their uh, primary endpoint was CR rate. Um, and we can see here that that cell is additionally highly active in follicular lymphoma. The CR rate, 66%, and an overall response rate of 86%, and the duration of response with, with somewhat shorter follow-up, but um, we're seeing excellent uh, data with, with this follow-up here. Um, of uh, the, the probability of a responding patient to remain in response at six months was 76%. And the progression median progression-free survival and overall survival for the whole co- cohort had not been met. Again, this is updated this year, um, with now with a median follow-up of 17 months, and we see the 12-month progression-free survival is 67%. Um, again, some separation based on sort of the the risk group of the patient, um, those with progression of disease within 24 months, we're seeing some difference um, in, in progression-free survival at, at 12 months, as well as tumor volume. And then the safety results with TissaCell are um, similar to its use in, in large cell lymphoma. The CR rate, or on the, I'm sorry, the CRS um, rate is 76%. 78%, 48%, sorry, but no grade 3 uh, toxicity was seen. Uh, the neurologic events were seen in 9% of people, um, but only 1% were grade 3 or higher. So some take-home thoughts on CAR T-cell therapy and follicular lymphoma. Um, we are seeing that CAR-T cell therapy is highly effective for relapsed, refractory, follicular lymphoma patients across risk groups with an overall response rate dependent on product of 86 to 94 percent and a high CR rate of 66 to 79 percent. We see that these responses are largely durable. With AxisL, the progression-free survival um, is uh, three, 39.6 months and a median follow-up of point nine months, and this is an FDA-approved product earlier this year. cell, um, progression-free survival has not yet been met with some shorter follow-up and it is under FDA priority review. Um, We also see that the safety profile is manageable and perhaps favorable when compared with its use in large cell lymphoma. So here's a case of a CLL patient. to highlight CAR T cell use for CLL. So this is a 66-year-old man who was diagnosed in 2018 after presenting with abdominal pain, found to have bulky lymphadenopathy, cytopenias, and lymphocytosis. His flow was consistent with CLL, and he did fall into a high-risk group. Um, IGVH unmutated um, with uh, 17P deletion by FISH. He was started on abrutinib monotherapy, but unfortunately progressed within the first few months of treatment. Uh, Venetoclax was then trialed uh, for a few months with no improvement, only stable disease. Uh, these drugs were tried in combination, but he had no response to this therapy as well, and so he was enrolled to receive uh, CAR cells on a clinical trial, but then he had, um, as you can see on his scan here uh, in the... Um, Uh, In the axillary region, he had a lymph node that was biopsied, um, which uh, somewhat surprisingly showed uh, Richter's transformation. Um, So he was luckily able to receive CAR T cells um, as a single patient um, compassionate use IND, he received those in June of 2019, and his course was um, complicated by CRS, requiring vasopressors that making him grade three. Uh, he did not develop eye cans. Um, he was treated with tocilizumab and dexamethasone accordingly based on his grade three CRS and was able to be discharged home by day 13. Uh, on his day 30 bone marrow and his CT assessment, he had achieved a complete response in the marrow and then a PR by, by CT. Um, and the, the definitions for CR in, um, in CLL are perhaps a little different, um, but the lymph nodes need to be below a certain level. And so um, he actually continued to have shrinkage of his lymph node, and so at 24 months, um, his CBC was normal, and a CT scan showed no further decrease or showed further decrease in his lymphadenopathy, um, which was still consistent with an ongoing PR. So the Transcend study in uh, Transcend CLL004 um, is the study we're going to discuss here, in which uh, CAR T cell therapy was used for CLL. So, the eligibility for this trial included people with relapsed refractory CLL. Um, they had to have either failed or been ineligible for a BTK inhibitor. Um, if, if a person was high risk, um, based largely on um, presence of TP53 mutation, um, IGVH um, mutation status, um, they they had to only fail two prior lines of therapy and standard or if you had standard risk disease and failed three lines of prior therapy and ECOG performance status was zero to one, uh, so during the during that eligibility screen. Um, if they met eligibility, they were enrolled in leukophorese, bridging therapy was allow- allowed. I would say that um, to address maybe this issue in CLL, um, manufacturing uh, specifically was noted to be successful almost all the time, 96 percent of the cases. Um, and that patients did have to have measurable disease reconfirmed um, prior to lymphodepletion and treatment with Lysis L. Um, they were treated with a similar uh, lymphodepleting regimen as we've seen thus far. The primary outcome, or I'm sorry, the primary um, objective in this uh, phase one study was safety and then to determine the recommended dose or with some exploratory outcomes of anti-tumor activity and uh, PK profile. Um, the two dose levels, sorry, the two dose levels that were explored, I don't think I can go back. There were two dose levels that were explored. Um, Uh, You can see here there were nine patients in dose level one and 14 in dose level two. I just wanted to highlight the patient characteristics. You can see that most of those patients, 83 percent, had high-risk genetic features. Um, Largely that was uh, mutated TP53 um, with with, uh, 17P deletion or a complex karyotype. Um, additionally, patients had a median of four prior lines of therapy. All had had um, prior brutinib based on the eligibility, and 67 or 65 percent had venetoclax. And so this is the response slide. You can see that, that all 22 patients here um, in the first bar graph, um, the response was 82 percent. 45 percent had a CR. Um, with with no major differences between dose levels. Um, This study also looked at undetectable MRD both in the blood and marrow, looked at that status and um, the darker blue here is um, the total that had um, achieved MRD by by undetectability in the blood, that was 75%, 65% in the marrow and that's at any time point. Um, Here is our response data, so now there's 24 months of follow-up. This graph is a little bit uh, busy, but you can see the, this is all 22 patients and what their responses were um, over time with the 24-month spot here being the end of the study. And so um, what I would say is the responses here were durable. At 12 months, 50% were in response. Um, and only two of those people who were in response had subsequently progressed beyond the 12-month point. Um, Of the 15 people who achieved that undetectable MRD in the blood, four of them had subsequently progressed and three uh, that was due to Richter's transformation. So they looked at the data in subgroups here. This is a group of patients that had progressed on a BTK inhibitor and then failed venetoclax any number of reasons. And they, this group is also attaining some durable responses, you can see in these first four patients, but um, and many of those responses were rapid and durable, but um, there were five uh, Richter's transformation events and four of those did happen in that subgroup. Here is the uh, duration of response and progression-free survival slide, which is sort of a similar uh, message here. This is the uh, purple line is all patients, and the, uh, in which the median uh, duration of response was not reached. In the subgroup of BTK uh, failure and venetoclax um, uh, failure, the, those people did meet their um, progression or duration of response was uh, 17 months, so some take-home thoughts for CAR T-cell therapy in CLL. So lysocell monotherapy has a high and durable response rate in relapsed refractory CLL. We can see the overall response rate of 82%, many of those people attaining an MRD negative um, uh, endpoint. The duration of response was not reached at 24 months. The safety profile is similar to other indications with manageable toxicity, and I didn't present this here, but there, is, there was data, um, I believe, at ASH last year on the cohort of patients not presented that had a Brutinib with lysosol with very promising results. So uh, what I think we'll be finishing up here in a second, but what I wanted to uh, briefly um, draw your attention to is how we can uh, better understand those people with, with uh, large cell lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma, and um, indolent lymphomas, who, who is going to respond? Who will have durable responses, and sort of, are there anything? Is there anything that we can do to choose those people, and then things to work on to enhance durability of response? And so, um, this is an area uh, that has a lot of activity, and this slide um, sort of is based on not, not data that's not consistent from study to study, but but um, uh, each of these points has been seen in either trial data or real life data. So, looking at um, which patients are having better responses and how can we predict that? So in the patient variable, the, the pre, um, pre-CAR T-cell variables, Maybe patients with lower tumor burdens, lower inflammatory markers, lacking, any, uh, lacking you know, many medical comorbidities or lacking the need for bridging therapy so those people that didn't need bridging therapy have a better response. Looking at the T cells themselves, that we are seeing some improved responses when the T cell product has a higher proportion of CCR7 or other um, early memory T cells in the CAR T cell product when the T cells double quicker or have a higher CAR T cell peak to tumor burden ratio that is um, associated with a better response. And then the tumor itself, we are seeing um, in some sort of interesting data, perhaps out of Stanford and, and other places, when, this, when there is not a CD58 50 mutation in the tumor that is uh, um, associated with a better durable response. If there's low uh, tumor monocyte derived stem cells, higher, uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, and then the absence of MYC overexpression are all associated with improved responses. Toxicity, um, we see improved toxicity or lower toxicity, I'm sorry, we see increased toxicity in people with a higher tumor burden, higher pretreatment inflammatory markers, higher pretreatment monocyte levels, um, and then we see higher toxicity in people with higher CAR T cell levels, sort of as one might expect. Um, as well as people who have earlier cytokine release syndrome. And here's a last slide. I would draw your attention to, up in that corner, there's a practice aid with some guidelines on treatment of CRS and neurotoxicity. But um, just looking here at the CRS toxicities, what are we seeing? So um, the common toxicities, fever, hypotension, tachycardia, hypoxia, chills, those are things that we um, often see as manifestations of CRS. And then things that we don't see very often but can happen and are quite serious um, are in that next column here. You know, we can see cardiac arrhythmias, cardiac failure, renal insufficiency, HLH, is something we should pay attention to when we're seeing uh, severe CRS. And then finally, for neurologic events, we commonly see some confusion, encephalopathy, tremor, uncommon but serious if seen, seizure, leukoencephalopathy, cerebral edema. Again, this doesn't happen often, but when it does, it needs to be treated accordingly. And finally, here's a timeline for you to look out when we see these toxicities occurring, um, sort of generally. (laughs) Um, across the different CAR T cell products for for lymphoma. So CRS often happens early, um, day two, then neurologic events can happen, day five, we might see this pushed back a little bit with some of the 41 bb products. CRS usually resolves within a few days and neurologic Events can take a little longer, and this is seen. Um, you can see behind it is the CAR T cells. There. CAR T cells in the blood. What, what are their their proliferation rate and sort of how that corresponds with toxicity profile? Great, thank you so thank you so much, Allison. And so um, we we will get to some of those questions if
1: we have time at the end. But I do not want to rob myeloma and BCMA cars of their time. So I'm going to switch now to Dr. Costello, who's going to talk us uh, take us through CAR T cell therapy for multiple myeloma.
4: Thank you. And thank you, everybody. I'm Caitlin Costello. I'm from the University of California in San Diego. I am uh, delighted to be here with you to talk about what I think is, you know, the best disease up here. But we uh, myeloma doctors have not enjoyed the same riches that my lymphoma and leukemia colleagues have with so many CAR-T products and are just trying to keep up a bit. So I I hope to talk today about the one approved CAR-T product that we do have for multiple myeloma and then talk about what's coming down in the pipeline. So um, without any further ado, let us move forward with a case. So this is a case of a patient, Jacob, 62-year-old man with revised ISS stage 2 myeloma. He received initial induction treatment with our typical triplet of um, VRD, followed by an autologous stem cell transplant and received lenalidomide maintenance, of which he achieved a complete remission for several years. After three years, as we see happen, he developed progressive disease and went on second-line therapy with a triplet combination of daratumumab, pomalidomide, dexamethasone, and achieved a VGPR. But as we commonly see with multiple myeloma, this recurrence relapses that happen um, one year later, oftentimes these relapses or the duration of remissions end up being sequentially shorter. Again, developed a new plasma cytoma, rising M-protein, went on next-line therapy um, with carfilzomib, cy- uh, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone. Again, short re- remission time. Seven months later, progressive disease ended up with selenexor, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, originally devel- uh, achieving stable disease, but eventually progressed. This is a very typical course of our myeloma patients, um, who fortunately now have had seen you know much longer derish- uh, uh, remission times than had previously been seen, but unfortunately, we are still not curing people. So here he is after multiple relapses and several lines of prior therapy, fortunately still in good health, only with some mild neuropathy in his toes. And so what is our next best option for him? Well, BCMA targeted therapy has really become a bit of the darling of uh, targeted therapies for multiple myeloma because it's such a nice target. It really has very minimal um, off-target um expression in a sense that it really is solely expressed in the malignant plasma cells itself. And this allows for very little, little, limited off-target toxicity. And so there's been several approaches that have been designed in order to target BCMA, whether that is with Cartese, as we will touch on today, However, there are several other options looking at T-cell engagers, antibody antibody drug conjugates, one of which is already uh, on the market and available, um, belantamab mafidotin that offers a payload or a warhead that can be uh, kind of injected into the myeloma cell after targeting BCMA. But what's important to understand, however, is that as I've said with this case, the patient itself has very limited remission times. There's data finally that tells us that it's just as bad as we thought it is. We have so many medicines that are at our disposal now to treat these patients, but once they've made it through their main three classes of drugs, however, particularly the um, immunomodulatory agents and the proteasome inhibitors and the anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies, the outcomes become progressively more dismal. And so when you're thinking about triple-class refractory patients, we can see that the overall survival continues continues to decrease. This was the mammoth study, which was was a really helpful way to understand um, just what those overall survival patterns are. So if you have a patient who's refractory to a CD38 monoclonal antibody, um, but not both the PI and the the overall survival is still less than a year. However, with triple and quad and eventually penta refractory, which refers to our kind of main five drugs that are available in the classes of CD38 monoclonal antibodies, proteasome inhibitors, and IMIDs, you unfortunately are reaching an overall survival of less than six months. And so looking at this patient population, this notes a significant unmet need looking for something that is the next best thing to to offer. And, and here it comes. Finally, in, in 2019, we had some initial data that started coming out on BB2121, um, the, the initial BCMA-targeted CAR-T therapy. Um, and over the last couple of years, we've seen the KARMA study, which I'll we'll review here, kind of continue to evolve and mature. So we have some initial data that suggests um, just how well this could be offered to our patients. So the pivotal phase, phase two KARMA study included patients with relapse refractory multiple myeloma who had had three or more prior lines of therapy. These are patients that must have been exposed to prior IMIDs and proteasome inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies against CD38 and had to have been refractory to their last prior therapy. These patients received underwent uh, leukophoresis, as we've heard previously. They were allowed to get bridging chemotherapy. Um, they received lymphodepleting chemotherapy followed by the CAR T infusion. Primary endpoints were looking at overall response rates, with secondary outcomes looking at or endpoints looking at duration of response, progression-free survival, um, and looking at um, other exploratory endpoints. But as we've hoped for, this is looking to see that one-and-done treatment. How you know for all these patients who've been on years and years of maintenance therapy, this has really become an attractive option to offer this one-and-done. And so with this trial, we were able to see um, a dose-finding trial that showed progressive cohorts of, that were weight-based as well of 150, 300, and 450, where we we're finally able to see some medium follow-up time of you know, about a year, or a year and a half or so. And so this, led, this was the registration trial that led to the approval of well, the FDA-approved dose of about 300 to 450 uh, times 10 to the 6, 10 to the 6 cells. And so looking at who these patients are, well, they're exactly the patients who needed it. These are these heavily pretreated patients, refractor their last line of therapy. Many of them had high tumor burden, almost all of them required uh, bridging therapy. And as you can see there, this included a very high-risk population with about a third of them having high-risk cytogenetics and another third having extramedullary disease. These are classic high-risk findings in advanced myeloma. Again, about 90% of patients required bridging, bridging therapy showing that these are not your smoldering patients. These are patients that have disease that is kind of exploding before our eyes. And so looking at the best overall response, looking at the primary and key key secondary endpoints, we were happy after having seen how dismal the overall survival is for these patients who have had, you know, pentarefractory disease. Now we're seeing overall response rates, which are about 73%. You know, the FDA baseline for many of our our standards, I should say, for many of the drugs that get approved for myeloma as single agents are somewhere along the line of about 20 to 30%. So seeing overall response rates from a a product such as this at 73% is really remarkable remarkable and kind of, um, um, you know, groundbreaking for our, us myeloma docs. And what's nice is that you see a very rapid time to response. So about a month is the median time to response before you see that patients are starting to achieve remissions and median time to complete remission is just under three months. And this, this was data that was after a median follow-up of just over a year or so, where you can see that there is a dose-dependent response with the overall response rates being about, as I mentioned, 73%, but with that highest dose cohort having an 81% overall response rate just the same. And so, you know, here we are hoping for that one and done that's going to be that long term outcome for us. We do see that there is a dose dependent progression free survival benefit, just the same. Those patients who get the higher doses are the patients who have the best per- progression free survival overall. And not surprisingly, as we've seen with our lymphoma CAR T data, just the same, the patients who do well do well. I mean, we see that those patients that end up in complete remissions are the ones that have the best progression free survival as well. So, that those patients on average who achieve a complete remission have. A PFS of about 20 months. But for those patients, unfortunately, who are not responding, you can see that they end up developing. You can see that those non-responders are are progressing much more quickly. And so overall, the PFS increased by depth of response with median progression-free survival of about 20 months in those good responders. But we also have to uh, endure these same CRS and neurotoxicity with our BCMA-targeted CAR T therapies just the same. And again, you can see that with the increasing doses of the CAR T cells, we see the same increasing likelihood of, of developing CRS. And so in the KARMA study specifically, you can see that those patients with the highest dose, uh, the dose cohort, did have about um, 96% of patients developing uh, CRS. Now, fortunately, much of that was limited to grade one or two, um, where we really saw very little advanced um, CRS. When it happens, it happens early in this karma study, usually within the first day or two or so. Most of the patients, about two-thirds of them require tocilizumab and about, uh, about 20% of them are so required corticoster- corticosteroids. Um, neurotoxicity itself, unfortunately, is also an, um, an issue. Fortunately, we see that it's not as common. Across the board, Across the board, we can see that about 20% of patients in that highest dose cohort did develop some neurotoxicity, which again, onset of time is usually about somewhere around two days, but it can last for about five days post CAR T infusion. So again, expected, fortunately low grade and similar across target doses. And so there is much to come still from the Karma study that led to this registration of, of um, ITIS cell as the first BCMA targeted CAR T cell to be available for multiple myeloma. And I direct you to several abstracts that are being presented over this weekend that are looking at different cohorts of the Karma of the study, particularly looking at baseline correlates of those patients um, who did achieve a CR so we can get a better understanding like our lymphoma colleagues about who's gonna do better from the get-go. Um, there is also some information out there looking at um, different retrospective analysis analysis of eligibility criteria, and particularly we'll look at a kind of a novel um, car that's coming up on an oral presentation by Dr. Rajay that will happen on Sunday. And so let's transition now from our one and only approved uh, BCMA targeted CAR T cell to the kind of next newcomer that's, that's uh, kind of come up next. You know, the Karma and IDA cell really kind of threw down the gauntlet a bit to say we previously had, had so little to offer these patients who were at their fourth relapse and beyond, and really offered overall response rates and re- uh, progression free survivals that had been unprecedented at that phase of disease. But the CAR T2 now is kind of starting to up the ante a little bit. So let's review the SILTA cell data. So CARTITUDE one was a, as an opportunity to review um, the original L-CAR that was um, looked at by the legend, which was a Chinese CAR-T that was developed originally. It was presented at ASCO a couple of years, excuse me, ASH in San Diego a couple of years ago. Um, um, so this is a dual um, binding domain, um, which is something different um, in terms of the construct formation um, that we're hoping that could allow for better outcomes. So as far as the CARTA-2 data, looking at overall response rates, again, this included about 100 patients, really now seeing overall response rates of 98%. Again, unprecedented in numbers that we haven't seen. And these are patients, again, we're looking for deep responses and durable responses, seeing that patients about 90 plus percent are achieving MRD negativity at 10 to the minus fifth. And looking at these patients and looking at their overall median progression-free survival, across the board, we're seeing t- nearly two years of a PFS um, for all patients with an 18 month PFS rate of about 66%. So looking at the difference now of response rate for the siltacel product relative to the cell product that is approved, the next question comes up is, is the toxicity any different? And so looking at the siltacel data, you can see that these patients also do have significant amounts of CRS on the range of about 95%. What's different, however, it seems as if the time to onset is significantly later. This has pretty great implications for logistics, preparation, and potential outpatient implications for administration. But the uh, duration of time overall, if it were to occur on a median, at a, as a median date of about seven days post CAR T, the median duration was approximately four days. The same interventions can occur with tocilizumab and codocrosteroids, where the great majority of patients did receive something. And if you look at the comparison between cell and idacell what you can see there's a, a nearly equivalent CRS rates, nearly equivalent tocilizumab rates across the board. Um, We will get to the neurotoxicity in just a moment, but you can see that the maximum CRS grade across, uh, usually was just on the range of about grade one and grade two, so no significant um, CRS activity there. That's different. The neurotoxicity, however, may be a slightly different story, and it remains to be seen how this is gonna play out. So in terms of neurotoxicity for cell, there was increased neurotoxicity with slightly greater, higher grades of neurotoxicity with the cell product relative to the cell product. However, what was different is that we could see that the patients, once they had um, the development and subsequent, um, let's say, uh, improvement of their neurotoxicity associated with the product, however, did start to develop some late neurologic to, um, toxicity. There were some patients who had their ICANNs entirely resolved. However, there were patients who developed other neurotoxicities later. There was one, for example, that developed CNS um, cranial nerve palsies. Um, and there are there some patients that did end up having later term neurotoxicity, um, uh, upwards of a month or so post CAR infusion. And so looking at these neurotoxicities, we need to have a little better understanding about who's going to develop them, what are these late onset neurotoxicity, and the time to recovery just the same. Because some of these neurotoxicities that happened post ICANs had a median uh, duration or time to recovery of about 75 days post. And so there's very promising responses in terms of the SILTA cell data looking at the overall response rates and the um, progression-free survival. However, we really need to have a little better understanding about these late neurotoxicity events that are happening happening. happening with Cell. And the PDUFA date was originally set for November. Um, This past November was pushed forward to February, so we anxiously await um, that update. Uh, The CARTITUDE2 data here now is looking at a couple of different cohorts. So this is a phase two study looking at Cell safety and efficacy. There's two cohorts looking at patients who are lenalidomide, lenalidomide refractory with earlier lines of therapy. Um, only having including patients here with only one to three prior lines of therapy. A, co- a separate cohort is looking at patients following early relapse after their initial therapy, so presumably those patients who have her- very high-risk disease after receiving initial induction therapy with a proteasome inhibitor and IMID. These patients receive a single infusion of Cell and l- would lead to very early and deep responses. And so, again, looking at an opportunity now here at ASH, we're going to see updated and analyses how these cohorts A and B um, are faring now in earlier lines. A therapy with Sulta cell to cell. And so I point to you for a number of abstracts here at, at, at ASH this year, looking at follow-up of Siltacel, um, trying to get an understanding, as I mentioned, about adjusted outcomes or comparisons for various therapies and real-world settings for, for Siltacel, um, looking at patients particularly who are getting Siltacel earlier in their disease course than what we've previously seen the, the cell approval for. Um, so much to be seen here in terms of um, updated updates here and subgroup analyses at ASH 2021. And so I put this up here to say as though we have one approved BCMA-targeted CAR-T cell, one that's kind of you know nipping at its heels, but there's just so much more that's coming. This has really been an explosion of, of CAR-T products, all targeting BCMA, all with slightly different uh, constructs, different manufacturing processes, um, transposon-based therapies. There's a lot of excitement in terms of um, which is rushing the finish line that is going to finish up here late, including some allogeneic off-the-shelf BCMA targeted therapy which is going to be important in this patient population, which more often than not has seen corticosteroids and has been wildly, you know, beat down by, you know, their lymphocytes have been beat down over the years with all this treatment, where oftentimes CAR-T or T-cell apheresis and and, uh, production can be challenging. And so by giving healthy donor T-cells, I think this is really going to have an important, um, uh, you know, role for the management of of, um, multiply relapse and advanced refractory multiple myeloma. And so here we are targeting BCMA, really has become the new standard in terms of of treating patients with advanced disease. But the question that comes up next is, well, which one do I use? We have this bit of an embarrassment of riches now that we have so many options to do it. But I think there's a lot of different details we need to consider, including can any of these therapies be given in our community by our local oncologists, or do they all need to be given at academic centers? You know, There are novel drugs, but that usually means novel Toxicity just the same. You know, the antibody drug conjugate that has been approved by the FDA, Belantamab, which is that um, BCMA targeting antibody drug conjugate, has developed corneal toxicity, which has been a whole new ballgame for many of us, you know, oncologists who are very comfortable with hematologic toxicity and CRS and neurotoxicity. Suddenly, these patients have to see their ophthalmologist before every single dose. And so, while this may offer a nice outpatient option, it does develop some complexity to treatment. But the T cell engagers itself, again, is another new thing that's coming. While we don't have one approved quite yet, there are many that are in development. Um, that they can be given both as subcutaneous and and intravenous and just trying to keep up with our our CD19 T-cell engages just the the same, we see the same CRS and neurotoxicity, but oftentimes it's limited just like with blenitumumab to the first dose where maybe this is an opportunity for patients to receive their initial doses at the academic centers and then can transition for the subsequent uh, therapy to home to their local oncologist. And then CAR T cell, as I mentioned, one and done. Maybe this is an opportunity to give us prolonged therapy or one therapy with prolonged remissions if we're giving it probably you know, at the right time in the disease course where it's gonna have the most maximal um, impact. The problem we have right now is a little supply and demand problem. One CAR T with a whole lot of myeloma patients that's out there means long wait lists. And so we are all kind of anxiously awaiting um, more supplies so we can meet the demand that our patients um, really need this. And so to revisit Jacob, our patients, remember this is a patient with multiple multiple relapses, now asking the question, is he a clear candidate for BCMA-targeted CAR-T cell? And here he is. He's had his four lines of therapy. He's in excellent health. He has a good performance status with minimal toxicity. This is exactly the person we want to see at the academic center so that we can proceed with CAR-T. Please send these patients early. These are the patients that if it's going to have some wait lists, unfortunately, or it's going to take some manufacturing time to do this. We want to get those patients in, authorized, worked up, confirm eligibility so that we can move to our, towards CAR-T when their kind of lottery ticket, it feels, is, is drawn.
1: Thank you so much, Caitlin, and um, thank you all for sending excellent questions.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XZA860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Kite, a Gilead company, Legend Biotech, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.